Welcome to the Peaceful Political Revolution in America podcast. In Season 1, Episode 2 last year, I spoke with Professor Emeritus of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay, Harvey J. K. He is an award-winning author and editor of 18 books on history and politics, including Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, and FDR on Democracy. In Season 1, Episode 2, we talked about his book, Thomas Paine and the Promise of America. He's a really gifted speaker and a real pleasure to talk to. At that time, Harvey suggested he come back for another conversation, this time about FDR's Economic Bill of Rights. I'm really happy to say that that conversation has finally arrived. In addition, we will be joined by his friend, activist, and executive director of Progressive Democrats of America, Alan Minsky. Alan is a lifelong activist who has worked as a progressive journalist for the past two decades. He was the program director at KPFK in Los Angeles from 2009 until 2018. He also has coordinated Pacifica Radio's national coverage of elections. Before that, Alan was one of the founders of LA Indie Media. He is the creator and producer of the political podcasts for The Nation and Jacobin Magazine as well as a contributor to Common Dreams and Truth Dig. Alan's activism began in college with union solidarity work and opposition to U.S. involvement in Central America. In the 1990s and early 2000s, Alan was active in the counter-globalization and media democracy movements. In 2011, he began organizing for Occupy Wall Street in the months leading up to the occupation of Zuccotti Park. Allen began working with PDA in 2014. This country has seen its share of opulence and struggle, but what about its share of democracy? We live in an era not unlike the Gilded Age, which flourished from 1877 to 1900. The Gilded Age was marked by extreme concentrations of wealth and the rise of powerful industrial titans known as the robber barons. Men like Jay Gould, J.P. Morgan, Cornelius Vanderbilt, John D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie. Corruption, unprecedented immigration, and the concentration of wealth by the 1% were just a few of the things that characterized that period of American history. This explosion of economic prosperity for a few arose only 12 years after the Civil War, which raged between 1861 and 1865 and only a few months after Reconstruction, which lasted until 1877. The age of the robber barons, or the Gilded Age, was followed by a very different set of challenges, including events like World War I, which began in 1914 and ended in 1918. 
Along come the Roaring Twenties, then we had the Great Crash of 29, and the Great Depression, which lasted until 1939. In addition to all those hardships, Americans had to confront the Great Dust Bowl from 1930 until 1936. Caused by short-sighted federal land policies, changes in regional weather, and new mechanized farming techniques which led to the erosion of vital topsoil. FDR won the election to the New York State Senate in 1910 as a Democrat and quickly became associated with the progressives of the party. He was elected governor of New York in 1928 and again in 1930. He was first elected president in 1932. He was re-elected president in 1936, 1940, and once again in 1944. He died in office during his historic fourth term in office and is largely credited with bringing the United States out of the worst economic disaster America had ever faced, as well as a devastating world war. I wanted to start this conversation with you, Harvey, about FDR. You have such a wealth of knowledge about him, and he is such an important figure today. I thought we should begin with a quick look at your amazing book, FDR and Democracy. So there's so much to cover. Explain why FDR's legacy is so important today and why America is suffering from so many problems in the early 20th century. That's a lot to cover. And by the way, it's a very special day, isn't it? This is a very special day. This is the, the 79th anniversary of FDR's State of the Union message in which he pronounced this promise or vision, this whole idea of an economic bill of rights for all Americans. As he said, in light of what had been accomplished in the New Deal and then in the war effort, he believed that Americans now sensed and felt the need to make official their yearnings for health care, housing, guaranteed education, the whole host of things that makes for a good society and a good life. And so he said, it's time for this second Bill of Rights or Economic Bill of Rights. Now, the reason I think that FDR is, it's so critical for us to entertain thoughts about FDR, it's so critical for us to think about FDR, is this. First of all, it's been a long time, if ever, that Americans really understood what transpired in the course of the 1930s and early 40s. I'll tell you what I mean by that is this. Conservatives went to war against FDR throughout the 30s and into the 40s. Okay, They did not want a new deal. It threatened the powers and profits of capital, and basically was, in its own way, a revolutionary transformation of American life. So conservatives had, had pursued campaigns over and over again against FDR and the New Deal. And then, in the wake of the war, conservatives were really up against the wall, you might say, because they were associated with American isolationism and the fact that, in many ways, the U.S. was not ready to fight in World War II. But the other thing is, is that liberals who should have been really presenting the FDR who had led Americans 
to save American democratic life, basically portrayed FDR as the guy who created the welfare state. Oh. As opposed to the FDR, who mobilized a generation to transform America and make it freer, more equal, and more democratic. In other words, I, I've now come to see, and I'm not even sure it's an exaggeration, I've come to see FDR as having gone through a progressive phase in the 19-teens, when the progressive era seemed to be on the verge of really transforming the Gilded Age America into a more democratic, or at least a more Republican kind of uh, America, small r Republican. Mm -hmm. And then, in the, but but of course, in the 1920s, there was this re, you know real reaction to that progressive era. It's not unusual in American life for conservatives and reactionaries to find their way back into power and smash whatever progress has taken place. And in the 1920s, there was this really intense reaction to the changes that had been taking place during the 19-teens, punctuated by World War I. And it's in the 1920s that FDR, who suffers polio, comes to be better educated to the needs of working Americans. He was already, by the way, decided progressive. He was already hostile to what the Gilded Age order represented. But in the 1920s, when he was out of any kind of political office, struggling to come to grips with the polio he was suffering, he actually began to cultivate, to develop a, a, li a liberal politics. Liberalism before then had meant something utterly different. Liberalism generally went back to, like, to the 18th century idea of free markets and liberating institutions and properties to be available to that market. I see. So, it, so now he's, he's been a progressive. He moves to become, if you like, the cultivator and articulator of a new liberal politics. But here's the thing. He had already understood that the Gilded Age was denying the American promise, the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, and a government of we the people. Mm -hmm. When the crash occurs and all hell breaks loose in the economy in the next couple of years, he now sees that that very same, if you like, persistence of the Gilded Age, it's changed somewhat, but it's still the basic laissez-faire economics, okay? I mean, it's still the same capitalist-driven order, okay? It's still the growing inequality of wealth and power, that kind of thing. He actually, I think, I've now come to see, becomes a radical. Hmm. And, and when I dug deep into his writings, not only his public speeches, but some of these letters he would write to people, he had actually said, I think it's time for this country to become fairly radical for at least a generation. Yeah, And that, in some ways, what he was saying is, that's what we're going to have to do. And he and the American people, especially working people, that's what they did. They made America radical, fairly radical, for at least a generation. And what's interesting about that stretch of 12 years that he's president, even before he's president, the stretch from 32 to 45, is that in 1932, when he's campaigning for the presidency, hmm. he calls for the creation of an economic declaration of rights. He makes clear the fact that the the Industrial capitalists, the corporate empire builders, had literally crushed the promise of the Declaration of Independence, that life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, and that it was time to create a new declaration, an economic declaration of rights. So it's interesting that in 32, he campaigns, he said, and by the way, 
since you're living in the Bay Area, he gave that speech at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, which I assume was a club of fairly prominent, fairly well-off men, men and their wives, right? Something like that. And, and he's telling these capitalists, or at least the agents of capital, that it's time that we create an economic declaration of rights and, we, and, and that we make life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness mean something. We need a new social contract. Then in, and then, of course, we brought up the Economic Bill of Rights anniversary today. In 44, he calls for a new Economic Bill of Rights. His entire presidency is bookended or framed by this ambition, this aspiration of his to change the basic social contract in America and to empower, empower working people. He said, necessitous men are not free men. Right. Right. And he, by the way, the first time he said it, he said that in that speech of 44, that State of the Union. Mm -hmm. One mm -hmm. of the first times he said it was actually back in 36 when he accepted the nomination for a second term as president uh, from, you know, the Democratic nomination. And in that one, he said, you know, these economic royalists, comparing them to the political royalists of the American Revolution, <laughs> these economic royalists think we want to, you know, we want to overthrow or overturn American institutions. No, what we want to overthrow is their power. Right. And he and he emphasizes that their power, okay, has literally disempowered small business people, workers. They've literally lost their capacity economically to make it in the world without bowing and deferring to those economic royalties. I mean, it's really, I mean, he, that that speech in 36 was the most radical speech ever given by a president. I know that the video that I produced with Gravel, they titled it the most radical speech in presidential history. But, but the most radical speech was the 36 speech. The most visionary speech was either the For Freedom speech mm -hmm. of 41 or decidedly for American purposes, you, you might say, what we need is that Economic Bill of Rights speech. Well, I hope people understand why we're talking about this to begin with, because I don't think a lot of people these days know much about FDR. Your book is, I think, required reading for anybody who wants to move this country forward. Because if you don't understand FDR, it's like you don't understand Thomas Paine. And if you don't understand these people, how can you understand what it means to be an American? I, I, don't, I don't think you can. I wholeheartedly agree with that. You brought up the Gilded Age. I wonder, Alan, do you see today as a new Gilded Age? And what do you make of the extreme inequalities of wealth and the Republican effort to cut back on Medicare and Social Security at the same time, nurses and railroad workers and Starbucks workers and Amazon employees and teachers are all striking? I mean, it, it's, it's really incredible what's going on right now. Well, you know, there are many parallels that can be drawn between the moment we're in now and the time which Roosevelt acted beginning in 1933 on being inaugurated and launching the New Deal, and also comparing the levels of wealth inequality to the period only a few years earlier when ostensibly the uh, U.S. economy was booming, but then it all came crashing down in 1929 and the was launched by the stock market crash of October 29, 
Um, though in many respects, the closer analogy would be to what happened in America in 2008, in the fall of 2008. But I think we are at a very significant moment in our history. On the one hand, we have levels of wealth inequality, which have only grown greater, by the way, since 2008. In other words, we have this massive economic crisis. And rather than having uh, the approach that uh, really would have dominated an economic approach to such an economic crisis in the post-World War II period with Keynesian policies getting money back into people's pockets. In fact, you just had the wealth aggregate even to a greater degree into the hands of the wealthy, into wealthy institutions. You can even look at the level of home ownership, private home ownership declining, and the amount of banks and financial institutions buying up real estate properties going up. And so America does find itself in a very, very unequal place with all sorts of clear signs that everybody in society knows about the endemic uh, crises that afflict American society from homelessness to poverty to mass incarceration to a failing healthcare system, the student debt that loads, just anywhere you look at American society, mm -hmm. you can see, see these problems. Yeah. But at the same time, we're at a moment right now in 2023, the beginning of this year, and we'll have a presidential election in 24, where we are coming out of a three-year period that represents the greatest disruption um, in the way that we've all lived our lives as a socially shared experience that we've seen in American society. I remember when it launched, um, people went back to uh, you know, the Great Depression as a social disruption, uh, World War II. Uh, and I remember Bernie Sanders was going, since the Civil War, <laughs> at any rate, it's, it's unlike anything we've seen in our lifetime. So in that sense, that's a little bit analogous to 29 to 33, because that was an incredible disruption in American society. And when you have a disruption at this level, you have an opportunity to address the population and say, OK, what do we want from this society? And when the baseline of what we're working off of right now has so much inequality and it's such an unfair deal to for the American public economically. And when you look at the public opinion polls, I mean, right after this pandemic killing over a million people domestically, right away, the top public opinion polling shows that the top issue of interest is both number one, the economy, number two, inflation. You combine them because they're really the same issue. And we have the American public looking for our society to be reset. And we have an opportunity to present a vision for American society that for every individual in society, you'll recognize that this is a more fair deal, the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, just as Roosevelt at the end of World War II was proposing it so that we can have a more fair and just society. The pain of the Great Depression would be something of the past. Now we can say, okay, look, the American dream has just been a thing of the past since 2008. It really hasn't come yeah. back. Uh, and it's now fading in our memories what it was like to live in a society where that kind of aspirational element was uh, a big part of what people were living for. But we can say, let's reset our economy. We think there's an appetite out there. You look at the public opinion polling on the question, is the country going in the right direction or the wrong direction? That's been terrible in recent years. We have a political crisis that itself is almost undoubtedly related to the levels of wealth inequality, the crisis of democracy. All of these things point to the fact that at this moment, we can present a vision for a more cohesive and fair America in which we can get out of the political and social crisis we're in, say, let's be a society where we're all going to have all the boats lift 
and we'll all be up on you know better, better, better cities ahead for the American public. And I think with the 21st Century Economic Bill of Rights, the appetite is there for the American public. And uh, hopefully Harvey and I can present this to large swaths of people and they'll embrace it as a vision going forward. I think it's fundamentally what we need to do as well. And I also feel like the climb is getting steeper because now we have more confusion in our society about what truth is, you know? So when you're advocating for policy changes on that level, all of them are pretty radical to begin with. They're fundamentally revolutionary, I would say. Mm. And people are having a more and more difficult time discerning truth from fiction, right? So when you come out to the public with a program like this and suggest this is where we need to go. Does it concern you also that there is this growing divide in America between the way people actually just see things? Well, here, one of the reasons that we're proposing a 21st century economic bill of rights, one of the reasons that we're redeeming the original vision of Franklin Roosevelt mm -hmm. at this point in time is that we know that the majority of Americans want the kinds of things that an economic bill of rights addresses. We know that. Mm -hmm. It's not just Democrats who want it. Republicans want it as well. And I'll just use a little historical analogy. When FDR proposed an economic bill of rights in 1944, he had commissioned polling to ask Americans how they felt about these kinds of things. And the overwhelming majority wanted national health care and such things as mm. part of the post-war politics of America, the post-war initiatives of the United States. And it was blocked, ultimately. It was blocked by the forces both of business and by Southern white supremacists who knew that an economic bill of rights would literally destroy the foundations of white supremacy and segregation. Mm. Well, today, today, this economic bill of rights would obviously transcend the politics of the corporate Democrats. And it would obviously appeal not just to working people who have traditionally been in labor unions and supported these things, but also the Republicans who've been alienated, you might say, turned off by Democrats who make agenda promises and never fulfill. The idea is now to offer the Democrats, by way of the progressives within the party, mm -hmm. a vision and a story, okay, that would appeal anew to the folks who had in the past been turned off. Now, it means as well, means as well that this cannot be merely a matter of messaging, that it really has to be, it really, since it speaks to people's lives, it mm -hmm. clearly has to engage them. So it does require a, a coalition of labor, mm -hmm. progressive organizations. First and foremost comes to mind Alan's organization that I've been active with in the past couple of years, Progressive Democrats of America. These kinds of forces need to coalesce in order to give it, if you like, material heft and not merely a messaging, um, you might say.
Well, that that kind of leads me to my next question, and it's just kind of directed at Alan, because Alan, you wrote in an article in Common Dreams, I think maybe you both co-wrote it, polls consistently show the majority of Americans across the country want to see Congress turn the central features of the progressive economic agenda into laws, policies, and programs, right? So if we live in a democracy, which I presume you both agree that we do, why are these policies not already the law of the land? You know, it's, uh, it's sadder than that even. Um, uh, Progressive Democrats of America is, as the name betrays, um, um, an organization that has a clear association with the Democratic Party. Um, I think following the 2016 presidential cycle, uh, we and the growth then following that of the Progressive Caucus in the House of Representatives, we clearly have a party that, I mean, there's many ways to slice and dice the political coalitions that make up the two major parties. Following the Sanders campaign in 2016 and the challenge against Clinton, and then the way that the 2020 presidential primaries played out as well, where Bernie was ahead until they all sort of ganked up on him and then Biden won. Biden, who was getting wiped out until that point, we have a party split between a progressive wing and a um, establishment wing, because of course it fully dominated the party before Sanders' campaign in 2016. If you look at the public policy positions that are associated with Hillary Clinton and then Joe Biden in terms of their campaigns, and then you look at the policy platform of Sanders, pretty consistent across his two runs, and then you look at the polling numbers among people who vote in Democratic yeah. primaries, it's it's about an 80 to 20 split on the difference, time and time again, and yet the dominant party, faction of the party remains the, the moderate party. Of course, it has a lot to do with the power and influence of money. Um, also, right. the difficulty of establishing essentially an incumbent mm -hmm. um, tendency within one of the two major parties and move it out. We've mm -hmm. seen, of course, a little mm -hmm. bit more movement inside the Republican Party in that manner in recent years than we have in the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party establishment of the neoliberal era has remained deeply entrenched. In California, by the way, the public opinion polling is even more severe. And you do see in the state politics shifting towards um, a, a slightly more progressive variation on the sort of neoliberal policies of the Clinton and Obama administration. But I would, I would argue that fundamentally, um, the Gavin Newsom Democrats in California are um, primarily protecting their um, uh, alliance with um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, corporate capital in California. In other words, they remain fundamentally like a, a neoliberal party. And what's a neoliberal party? Uh, neoliberalism, you know, you can whatever, you can call it Reaganism, Clintonism, for if you want to use a more American term. The idea that the market, more than the regulatory policies of elected officials, should be the determining factor in how resources are allocated in society. And, um, and I don't think the Democratic Party, even in California, has challenged that fundamentally, whereas the Sanders agenda would, as would, what we have in the Economic Bill of Rights. But I would do want to say that going back to the comment you made right after I last spoke about this being a radical, uh, radically transformative set of policies, yes, but only going back to what was the dominant structures over the American economy from 1933 to roughly the mid 70s, and that remain the sort of legacy structural arrangements of the economy in every other prosperous country in the world. That is, besides, um, yeah, 
I mean, the, the 20 most prosperous countries in the world are largely the, were the wealthiest of the U.S. allies in the Cold War. So Australia, New Zealand, Japan, you know, Taiwan, South Korea, Western Europe, and Canada. Every one of those countries has the balance of those economic bill of rights in practice. Right. Um, and, and here's the thing. If you look at the United States, the thing that's a glaring difference in terms of our, the allocation of our tax money and the yeah. uh, federal government's balance sheet, yeah. of course, the huge difference is the military expenditure. But let me just posit this. If you think, okay, just, okay, so is that the, is that the thing here? We're never going to get to a, an American social democracy as long as we have those military expenditures? Well, of all 20 of those countries, the United States is the only one with a quarter to a third of the population living in a really low level of really? poverty. If you took that quarter to a third of the population and lifted them up to the level of prosperity relative to the general economy that you have for the poorest third of the country in France or Germany, the tax base would go up so much that you could actually maintain the military industrial complex and have these policies in the United States. You know, that might be an outcome some people want. I'm not sure I do, but I, I understand your thinking there on that. Yeah. Oh, it's it's a tough thing to unravel for me because on some level, I think about World War II, the, 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 the boom after World War II, which, which we all benefited from as some kind of aberration. Looking at the history of the United States, going back to the Civil War, as we mentioned earlier, right? And you think, you had civil war, then you had reconstruction, and then you had the Gilded Age out of the blue. Just where did that even come from? And then, you know, you have the, the crash, the depression, you have the, the dust, the, the dust bowl. I mean, there were so many. It, it's a boom and bust cycle, like on steroids. You know, it's either really too good for some some part of the population or terrible for everybody else. There's no balance, you know, and it's, it's confusing to me why it's so polarized like that over time. And you, you know, I mean, and then you run into world war two and FDR comes along and he was able to enact some policies that sort of stabilized the country. Well, you have to think of it this way, no new deal, no guarantee of victory in world war two. Ah, okay. And I don't only mean in terms of the recovery of the economy, it's also the fact, and this is, it's really the case that the Civilian Conservation Corps had 2 million young men working in it through the course of time in the 30s. And what, they, what happened is that these were these are young men, mostly from the cities, okay, from urban areas. They were relatively poor, relative, and, malnourished, limited health care before they ever went in. Their educational level was nothing to brag about. And in essence, they actually grew physically being in, okay, because they were, number one, they were eating better. They were getting proper health care. Mm -hmm. They were doing mm -hmm. a lot of good physical labor in forests mm -hmm. and out in, in, in fields. Um, they were getting an education. And by the way, they were also learning about how to improve the environment as they went forward. And, by, and if you think about that, those are the same young men who go into the US military and huh. later in their middle ages, 
not middle ages, but you know, middle as middle aged in the sixties, they're the yep. ones who vote a Congress that passes environmental protection laws and eventually creates the EPA. So, you know, I mean, it's that. I mean, one of the things people I don't think, I don't think people, people in history and social science generally avoid thinking of generations because it sounds because it's become so commercialized as a marketing device. Okay. Yeah. But it is the case that if you think about the young men and women who are, say, 15 years old in the 1930s, who are, in essence, in the midst of all of the activity and, and reform and reconstruction of the New Deal, okay, and the degree to which their lives are changed and, to use what Alan said, were uplifted, they then are the heart of the war effort. They, after the war, they're the ones who literally build, you know, I mean, we can all scorn the suburbs and, and middle-class life, but they build the most remarkable economy in world history. And I don't just mean in the United States, but the boom that begins in the United States becomes a global boom. Mm, yeah. But here's the other thing. Between 1935, 6, 7, hard to pin it down exactly, and 1973, four or so, inequality in America actually re reduced. Mm -hmm. People got richer, okay, mm -hmm. but everyone, but the distance between folks was reduced. But in the uh, somewhere around 72, three, four, and beyond, that inequality begins to take off again. Okay, and why is that? Well, we see processes of deregulation. We see attacks, a war on labor. We see assaults on the democratic achievements of the 30s and the 60s. Yeah, you talk about the war on the New Deal, that it was intentional. It was virulent. It was a, a real battle. And they dismantled a lot of what FDR had started. And they're now dismantled. And we're now in the, I mean, we've seen... Alan's heard me say this over and over again, 45 years of class war on the democratic achievements of the 30s and the 60s. Yeah. And we have seen literally constant, constant attack on what on so-called entitlements. Mm -hmm. And we know right now that if the Democrats had lost the Senate as well, you would be guaranteed a reduction of Social Security and Medicare by privatization or other means. And even now, you can be assured the Republicans in the House will go to battle against the Democrats and make demands on Biden to do something with Social Security and Medicare that he would not otherwise do in order to lift the debt ceiling. Alan, how does Build Back Better compare to your proposal for a new economic Bill of Rights? Well, Build Back Better, I think, uh, was a very hopeful moment, and but in particular because um, there were very few members of the House who were Democratic members of the House who who spoke out against it, and none who actually took action directly against it. Mm -hmm. So it might have been a little bit of kabuki theater, but it wasn't the 180, um, 1.8 trillion. It was 3.6 trillion passed through. Um, Richie Neal's House Ways and Means Committee. Hmm. It wasn't until Manchin and Cinema had signaled that they wouldn't accept anything greater than 1.8, mm -hmm. the House 
set out to cut it down. Now there were uh, there were about twelve members of the House, enough to eliminate their majority, who had spoken out against it, but they hadn't acted independently until Manchin and Cinema basically sent that signal across. And of course, then the whole thing happened where it got separated out from the infrastructure component. Uh, only six members of the squad voted against that breaking a part of the bill because they said Manchin and Cinema would kill it, even in its one point eight. Uh, trillion dollar form. And of course, they were correct. It was killed by Manchin and Cinema in its 1.8 and ended up with a very different uh, piece of legislation, the so-called Inflation Reduction Act. And tons of stuff was eliminated. People forget now, you know, leave, support for child care. I mean, large bills and then a lot of funding for community colleges, a lot more direct funding for um, green energy programs, what eventually came through in the IRA was almost all tax incentives. And, um, and also a, a pairing up of, there had to be a pairing of with a fossil fuel, with, with fossil fuel production, which is terrible given the climate emergency of what came through in the IRA. So, but what happened there? Well, first of all, it was a complete change from what we've seen for the last 40 years of um, economic policy coming from Capitol Hill in Washington in that this was not like the, the Trump CARES Act. Um, this was a permanent program. However, it, wasn't, it was definitely informed by the fact of the pandemic. So did it signal a willingness on behalf of moderate Democrats to shift towards these kind of direct programs and return to the kinds of policies we had last really seen in the Johnson administration, or at least maybe the first parts of the Nixon administration? And um, I think that's an open question. I do think that following the Sanders campaign, which I think we have to acknowledge something of an assist from the way Trump messaged as a candidate, that you know the previous economic orthodoxy was not working for the American people. There needs to be a different kind of response coming from Washington. And it does seem that some of the moderate Democrats sort of reconnected with maybe their youthful admiration for FDR and LBJ or something. So that was a promising sign. But no, it does not match up with the programs of the Economic Bill of Rights. Anything around addressing the housing crisis falls far short of a guaranteed right to a house. Um, Medicare for all. I mean, you know, by the way, um, earlier on in the interview, you guys were talking and, and one of you uh, talked about, you know, if the Republicans had taken the Senate, we'd see the attacks on, on uh, Medicare, among other things. We can't forget that when the Democrats controlled both houses and Biden was in the White House, they continued to expand Medicare advantage. That's how far away we are from Medicare for all, which would put us in sync with every one of those other countries, of those prosperous countries. We have an absolutely horrendous healthcare system in the United States of America, with, of course, the highest costs and the worst healthcare outcome. I mean, I think we've arrived after 40 years of neoliberalism um, with uh, almost just understood in our collective unconscious that if the current system is maintained as it is, the lives of the average American are just detritus to um, the people who really set American policy. That's evident from um, the complete lack of uh, compassion we have towards uh, people who live in just the nightmare scenario of American homelessness, uh, the incredible tensions uh, and precarity that average households have to experience where they overwork, they have no guaranteed vacation, I mean, the fact that people have to live under such constant stress in our society, the, the symbols of human misery here 
are way beyond they are in any of these other comparable countries in terms of wealth. You see it with the fentanyl crisis, you have deaths of, deaths of despair. The average life expectancy of Americans is at least flattened, and, and I think it's going down among some significant groups of the population. And then, you know, then if you, if you go and you get an education, like you're told that you're supposed to, you end up in a life of debt peonage. So something has to change. And again, I think that the stresses and pressures that are pulling apart even American democracy, I think are rooted in these economic pressures. And I think you can see the public saying that in the public opinion polling, their sense of deep dissatisfaction with the society. And so, you know, you know, yes, I'm obviously committed to the progressive Democrats and the current political movement that are is made up of left progressive Democrats. But, you know, I would like to see our arguments be persuasive way beyond the ranks of the people who are right now affiliate with that political movement. And I think that's very possible. And I think it's important to really take, um, take some lessons from FDR and find it in ourselves to, you know, message this as eloquently as possible. It's important right now in our era of the way communication works to have very concise and precise messaging with a narrative behind it of, so, of social renewal or even patriotism, if you like. And, um, and, then, um, and then the backbone is to show that this can be done. And it, it isn't that revolutionary because these things exist in other countries right now, and they more or less existed before in the United States in the 33 to 73 period. We certainly can learn lessons about the ways that the strategies were not managed well in that period. I, for one, would be much less of a fan of welfare payments than I would be of a universal job guarantee. I think there's simply enough labor to go around. And you can see the things that we need to have done in our society in terms of caring for the elderly and also education, the collapse of the fabric of public institutions. And Again, I think, look, uh, if you're a big believer in the sort of entrepreneurial dream of uh, the American dream, you know, are you going to do better starting up a new business or a shop if working people have money in their pockets or if working people don't have money in their pockets? I think the opportunity to have that kind of vibrant, um, you know, small business economy is actually greater in the scenario that we're painting. I posed the question earlier if you thought that our uh, democracy had sort of failed the American people. Um, I mean, I, I feel like if the majority of Americans want these things and it hasn't happened yet, is it because we're not electing the right people? I kind of don't think that's the whole story. I think there's a lot more to it, but are progressive Democrats are proposing a new piece of legislation or a constitutional amendment? Um, neither, but maybe a piece, a resolution would probably be the appropriate fit as opposed to a bill. Because it is drawn up as a concept of constitutional amendments. And um, yes. uh, that is a process that is very laborious and largely out of reach. Uh, you know, and, and to have all 10 of them pass is really, then you're really at the level of a pipe dream, right? Because it takes three quarters of, of state legislators voting for it, right? Plus the Congress, they're just 50-50 votes. Uh, and then you usually have a time frame to get three quarters of the, so 38 state legislatures. Mm -hmm. Right, and sometime, at some point, for the sake of people who will be listening to this, we really should lay out what those 10 rights are. Thank you. Uh, but, but let me just finish this. We wrote three articles. The second article to the middle one 
matches up every one of the points in the Economic Bill of Rights with really existing legislation that, that, that addresses these concerns. Sometimes it's just one piece of legislation for one entry, like, you know, in the healthcare entry, it's the Medicare for All bill. But in other ones, it's like, you know, eight bills or four bills apply to the, and they, they're really existing pieces of legislation that were introduced in the last Congress. So the progressive Democrats, the really existing progressive Democrats in Congress, are already really on this tip. They do support this. Uh, you know, that's the Sanders squad, Pramila Jayapal, Jim McGovern wing of the well, shall we run down the list real quick? What What's in the Economic Bill of Rights? Okay, well, the, there's a preamble that we should make clear to everyone. A 21st century Economic Bill of Rights will guarantee all people residing in the United States the right to the essentials of a good life, regardless of their income, race, religion, gender, sexual orientation, ability, status, or country of origin. And then we have these uh, stipulated these 10 rights. First, the right to a useful job that pays a living wage. And, and it's amazing to me that we, have, that we are so far away from what FDR called for in 1933, when he signed the National Industrial Recovery Act and said, no company that fails to pay a living wage should be allowed to operate in this country. And he signed it then a law that had the first minimum wage ever in the United States. Second, the right to a voice in the workplace through a union and collective bargaining. Three, the right to comprehensive quality health care, and we have yet to officially append it, but something along the lines of food security. Four, the right to a complete cost-free public education and access to broadband internet. Five, the right to decent, safe, affordable housing. Six, the right to a clean environment and a healthy planet. Seven, the right to a meaningful endowment of resources at birth and a secure retirement. Eight, the right to sound banking and financial services. Nine, the right to an equitable and economically fair justice system. And finally, the right to recreation and participation in civic and democratic life. None of these are actually, in historical terms, radical. But after decades of neoliberal rule and the return, well, the making of a second Gilded Age, these seem radical because the powers that be in both the Republican and Democratic parties would find these kinds of things unacceptable, which is why we're fortunate enough to have seen, as we know, the growth of this progressive movement, especially with the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020. And Alan may, may not be saying it, but I do want to point out to everyone who listens that it was Progressive Democrats of America, the organization of which Alan is the executive director, that actually recruited Bernie, encouraged and recruited Bernie to declare as a candidate in 2016. Did I present that properly, Alan? Yeah, uh, the the one the one uh, thing that was necessary from our point of view is that he run not as an independent but as a Democrat. Of course, Bernie's famous, and he did. We won that argument, Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just proud. He makes me proud to be an American. Hmm. He absolutely tells it the way it is every time he talks. I I've never seen him go off message. He's 
been remarkably consistent. And I think his message is still very, very important. I, I um, can't say enough about Just if I could just make a a couple of sidebars I want to indicate here. First of all, FDR proposed it in 1944. Harry Truman tried to sustain the ambition, the aspiration. In the 1960s, at the time of the Great Society, A. Philip Randolph, Mm -hmm. who had been a prominent, the the leading combined civil rights labor leader ever since the 1930s, proposed a freedom budget, a plan, a 10-year plan to wipe out poverty, rebuild urban, urban, you know, areas, rebuild rural areas, make them more economically and environmentally viable, okay? Mm -hmm. And he said that this would be the realization of the four freedoms that FDR pronounced in 41 and the Economic Bill of Rights that he pronounced in 44. Martin Luther King Jr. in 1968, before the tragedy that, that took his life, was very clear about the need for an economic bill of rights. And Bernie, since we brought his name up, in 2016, gave a very strong shout out about FDR's economic bill of rights. And then in 2020, on his website, laid out such an economic bill of rights for the 21st century. And there are other academics and organizational figures who have also been talking of late about, about this kind of stuff. But here's the other, the other side of the, of, the, of the coin. Ronald Reagan, who was, an, who was literally a, fan, I mean, a fanatic for FDR in the 30s and 40s. Mm. Oh yeah, he was mm, very much, so much so that he was known for giving renditions of FDR speeches at Hollywood parties during the war, World War II. Yeah. But, but the, the thing is that he turned to the right in the okay. course of the 1950s, the hard right, okay, and campaigned against such things as Social yeah. Security, labor unions, all the kinds of things that were the products of the New Deal that he once so was so enamored uh, of. But here, here's in 19. 19- 87, July 3rd, it was a July 4th weekend in Washington, at an event at the Mm -hmm. Jefferson Memorial sponsored by that wonderful organization, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, Reagan (laughs) himself called for an economic bill of rights. But please note, please note what he did. He, He takes the economic bill of rights and the four freedoms that FDR proposed. He turns the economic bill of rights idea into four freedoms, but listen to the freedoms, the freedom to work, the freedom to enjoy the fruits of one's labor, the freedom to own and control one's property, the freedom to participate in a free market. I always figure when conservatives hijack history, the best of, the best of the progressive and radical story of America it's a sign of their fear. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Reagan worried that there was still enough, if you like, imagination left in, uh, and, and thoughts uh, uh, regarding the, the Roosevelt years that he wanted to reconfigure the discourse on the question of an economic bill of rights. That goes back to something I was saying earlier is that there's this whiplash in America where it goes one way 
for a couple of years and then it turns around and goes the other way. But don't think of it as a pendulum. It's not a pendulum. It's the fact that the very forces of reaction mm -hmm. to the kinds of things that have been taking place of a progressive sort through American history, they have resources and they are more capable of uniting against those progressive advances than the progressives have of, of uniting together to sustain them. Don't forget, in the 30s, it wasn't just FDR. There was a popular front of the left, of liberal Democrats, of progressives, of radicals, even of socialists and communists who lined up in favor of these changes. And that, that, that we have not seen again in America. I mean, just we haven't. And if this is going to happen, it's going to have to take... I, I just add this point. In 1944, when FDR proposed the Economic Bill of Rights, the labor unions, both of the American Federation of Labor and the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which were separate organizations, the foremost liberal and progressive civic organizations, as well as the National Farmers Union, as well as civil rights groups, all mobilized to reelect FDR in pursuit of the Economic Bill of Rights. Well, we don't have an administration and a Democratic Party right now committed to that kind of progressive change. But we do have the possibility, I would think, given the crisis of our day, of mobilizing progressive labor unions, progressive organizations, and I could name the, these, these various unions and organizations, I don't have to at this point, but that could be the force that drives the argument and perhaps moves the Democratic Party by way of the Progressive Caucus, perhaps, towards embracing and resolving and creating a party committed to making it happen. I am, so you know, very concerned about the political system. That's where I have issues. And when I look at these European countries that have all these policies and I compare how they're systems of their political systems are designed and i see some very major and significant differences right and so i'm wondering to what degree is it the politicians or is it the system that they are in which needs the reformation and you know like thomas paine said when any part of society is suffering the constitution needs to be reformed we haven't reformed our constitution much in 200 plus years. Yeah, no, I think that's a very heavy lift. There are definitely structural components of the US constitutional system, and also the manner in which um, sort of a, the in the United States compared to almost all the Western European countries and, and the East Asian countries, um, you have this abundance of lawyers um, <laughs> operating because you don't have the state and state bureaucracies guaranteeing the maintenance of rules and regulations. Rather, the way it works here is somebody breaks the rules and then you sue against it. And that's how you establish precedent or maintain precedent for like when you buy a chocolate bar and it says it's three ounces and you know it's going to be three ounces. In Europe, they literally have bureaucrats that go around to make sure all, all the weights are accurate and stuff like that. And here is just you wait, you wait for it not to be three ounces and somebody sues. And um, uh, but, you know, that that goes to the U.S. Constitution, obviously, is you know, lasted as long as it has the uh, so oldest democratic republic in the world. But it is largely a set of, until you get to the Bill of Rights, the initial document is a set of notes. 
Like you can't, you have, you're going to have this because you, they, they're scared of the, the religious wars. So you're going to have free speech because you're not going to limit free speech, right? Um, you're not going to have a, a state re religion. So it's a bunch of nots. Uh, that's a, that can be a, a tough framework to create a bunch of yeses. Alan, you say progressives must offer not simply an attractive progressive economic legislative agenda, but also a truly compelling and transformative democratic story, vision, and unifying project. Mm -hmm. So what is that? Well, I mean, look, um, we have had um, democracy under attack in the country in the very conspicuous ways that we know about over the last few years. If you look at what the Republicans are doing at the state level, and then you look at things like the Democratic Party's John Lewis Voting Rights Act that they were unable to get passed into law uh, in even when they had both houses. The White House uh, would have required a filibuster carve out and you couldn't get that from Cinema and Mansion. But every one of those entries on the John Lewis Voting Rights Act and the electoral relevant aspects of the For the People Act from the Democrats, and you look at the organizations that track and rank global democracies, every one of those Democratic proposals strengthen democracy. Every one of the Republican proposals, you know, you make voting harder, ID laws, et cetera, uh, less early voting, um, all those things that hurts democracy. So um, we need we need to empower the public in every way, shape and form that we can and to encourage people to not get frustrated, because the only way that we can bring these kind of changes about that will directly improve the lives in terms of the, the health and welfare of people in a, in a, in a human non-material sense, and then in terms of the material welfare of the households, there'll be improvements, but they're only attainable in our political system by having a vibrant democracy. And there are all sorts of flaws in our democracy. Of course, the amount of money in it needs to somehow that, that equation has to be changed. That, again, can only be achieved by active participation in the democracy. So this is a collective effort. And I think Obviously, America, and you have great quotes by like the uh, politician Barbara Jordan, um, you know, we need America as great as its promise. Obviously, you look at American history, the sins of American history are severe. And all we can try to do is, um, you know, redeem the vision of, of people like Martin Luther King, uh, you know, known by almost the entire population, is uh, both, both a secular and non-secular saint in our society, for good reason. And... Um, and, and the heroes of American history, the people who struggled in the labor movement, the people who struggled in the civil rights movement uh, across time. And to redeem that America, um, I think the amount of frustration that people experience in the economy, um, clearly people understand their lives can be improved by what we're proposing, but it's going to be a collective effort that redeems our society. Look, we're the most diverse country in the history of the world. Um, there has been an incredible, um, horrible, um, in many pockets across the world, sort of um, uh, increase in, in ethno-nationalism, in reactionary ethno-nationalism, often connected to authoritarian anti-democratic movements. And the United States, for a whole variety of reasons, is as well positioned or better positioned than any society in the world to redeem the notion of a society of equals and to produce you know, the most prosperous and healthy society that we can here and to have a rival of any society that's existed on Earth. We are a long ways from that. But I think this is the pathway you know, back. Uh, here's this is something to remember. 
because we brought up this idea of narrative, that this affords a narrative. But this is this is important to understand what, what we mean by that. Americans know what they need. They know their troubles. The polling indicates that they also know what they want, and what they want is reflected in this Economic Bill of Rights. But this is what they don't know. What they don't know is that this Economic Bill of Rights is not an agenda that's drawn from foreign experience. And by the way, those foreign experiences, those places literally took what Americans developed as ideas and proposals and even practices and adapted them. Or as Alan usually notes, in some of those countries, it's the United States Army, or at least the representative of the United States government that helped or actually wrote their constitutions that afforded those very things that we didn't secure. Okay, having said, having said that, this is the point. Social democracy, which is what really this points towards, has always been a fundamental feature of, an Amer of American life well before anywhere else. We created the first public parks. Okay? We created the public higher education system. It goes all the way back to the Land-Grant Act that Lincoln signed into law. I mean, over and over again, the things that most enhanced American life for a generation and beyond were social democratic initiatives. It's important for Americans to realize that social democracy is at the heart of the American story, as much as the story of entrepreneurialism, the story of limited government that the Republicans would like them to believe. And the other thing is, is since they yearn for these things, they should understand that that very yearning is American. The yearning itself is American based on the story and the struggles and the achievements of their parents' and grandparents' generation. Well said. Know your history, know your power, and use it. We have a heritage in this country that is absolutely unique and amazing. Uh, you know, when you, when you think about how this country is formed and why, I mean, to think that we would reject a hereditary king as our ruler and say, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to have a government that we want to design. We're going to we're going to control our lives and our destiny. We the people are going to do that. That's a remarkable evolutionary step. If we forget those things, we would be at risk of losing our country. Harvey, you in your book uh, The Fight for the Four Freedoms, which is another astounding book you wrote about a veteran army intelligence officer named William Harlan Hale. Mm. You may remember that. He wrote in his book, The March for Freedom. I love the book. I have it back over. Yeah, I'm going to check that one out. He said, all along our course, I thought I could see the same clash between those who had the faith in the mass of men and those who feared them, between those who sought to extend opportunity to those who wanted to restrict privilege. Isn't this struggle going to be with us forever? And what do you mean when you say we need a generation of more radical Americans? It took a progressive spirit that was already, if you like, percolating 
in American life in 1932 when FDR became president. They elected him president because he ran and promised a new deal. They knew what they wanted. And he encouraged and he mobilized and he empowered them to carry out progressive change by way of the New Deal and to mobilize themselves into labor unions, a housewives movement, and really a, a more effective civil rights movement in the later 30s into the 40s. But also, and this is something I think really important, is that he regularly invited the very folks that he was propelling into action to push him, to not let him stand still. He, he, would, he, he literally would say to people, Right. Make me do it. Right. Okay. And he didn't mean I wouldn't do it otherwise. It's that you have to be there because there are lots of folks, the rich and the right, who will try to block us. So we've got to be pushing each other in order to get those folks out of the goddamn way. Right. Well, let's let's work on that. And Alan, what, what would you say we need to do to make this bill an economic bill of rights? A reality. What's the next step? What do we all have to do? Um, well, I think you know these are difficult things because the anti-democratic small D tendencies are quite pronounced within the Democratic Party. You know, if you even look at what happened in 2016, go back to that time. Remember, the rebel candidate in the Republican Party was able to win out. The rebel candidate in 2016 was sort of blocked, and some pretty pretty rough institutional barriers were put in place. So, you know, it's not just the political system at large, but even the Democratic Party. But I do think we have to be realistic about the lay of the land of our political system and our constitutional system. Understand what the barriers are, understand what the American people want, uh, have faith in what they want, and that we have policies that can achieve that form. Again, because this is not a pipe dream. These policies are in place in very prosperous societies that many structural components are very similar to ours in the re in the world right now as it is mm -hmm. um, and um and those are by all measures of more cohesive societies with less endemic crises. now we have this beautiful diversity where this incredible heterodox exchange of ideas occurs in the society and the traditions we were just talking about are brilliant in america and we have to highlight all of those things so we are different in that way. So we can make a beautiful, spectacular American society with prosperity for all and, and the elimination of these endemic problems across our society. But it's going to take follow through. It's going to take um, not giving up and understanding what that we have to do to achieve it is to make more vital the democratic process, participate in and join uh, a movement to win these things through our democracy and here's one thing about that. We're coming out of this pandemic. We do have some really rough sociological, cultural things going on about isolation that people are experiencing. Everybody's living inside their little handheld devices and they feel very distanced from their fellows. They're looking for community. They're looking for a shared project. I think this project of changing the fundamental equation of how American society works for the average person is something that people can find community in, and then we can all follow through, and we'll be happy for results of people. I love it. Thanks so much, you guys. Alan Minsky and Harvey J.K. on FDR and the New Economic Bill of Rights. As they point out, 
a new social contract for the nation will require lots of coalition building, our complete attention, and a lot of follow-through. As Allen points out, our Constitution was originally designed as a set of no's. That means we have to be especially united to accomplish a big resounding yes for an economic Bill of Rights. Will Americans come to terms with our responsibility as citizens to ensure our democratic institutions serve the majority of Americans? Two senators, Christian Sinema and Joe Manchin, were able to block significant legislation broadly supported by the American people. They represent only nine million Americans, so while we organize to create a new economic Bill of Rights, let us not forget or ignore the power of these less populous states. Next time, I'm going to look into a few of the concerns that some of the people have raised about changing our Constitution. What happens when a Constitution is too easy to amend? Unlike ours, Brazil has the most amendable Constitution in the world. I will be talking with Professor Giuliano Zaiden Benvindo next on the Peaceful Political Revolution in America podcast. He is Associate Professor at the University of Brasilia and Capes Humboldt Senior Fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Comparative Public Law and International Law. So tune in soon and until then, stay safe out there.